You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. Well, it's my privilege to invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to our sermon text this morning, which is Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. If you don't have your Bible today or your app isn't opening, you can always look on with, with someone who is next to you as we set our hearts upon the Word of God this morning. Uh, you know, at this time of year in uh, past years in the life of our church, we sometimes have taken a break from the regular preaching series of the church, which is typically verse by verse through a book of the Bible. And we sometimes have taken a break during the month of December so that we could focus on maybe like key Christmas texts and really focus in on the meaning of Christmas. This year, the pastors decided that we would not take that break because we're in the book of Galatians and that we would just push right on through December because... Because it gives us an opportunity at this important time of year to think carefully about the gospel, because the gospel is what Christmas is all about. It is the most important thing. In fact, it's the reason our church is named Paramount Church, is we want to make the gospel paramount. Now, what that means is that sometimes, though, the texts that we read may strike a chord that we don't anticipate, or it doesn't seem like something we would think about at Christmas. That might be a little bit true this morning. Now, uh, actually, next Sunday on Christmas Eve, Pastor Isaac will be preaching, and the text that would come up in Galatians is about how we should all make sure that we pay the pastors And that's not really the vibe that we're going for on Christmas Eve. So he's going to preach from a traditional Christmas text. We're going to get that birth narrative in there. And we're going to really really lift our hearts uh, in light of what Jesus has done for us. But this morning, it's a little bit counterintuitive. Because this morning, we're going to focus our hearts on the very real reality of sin in our daily lives. But of course, as we think carefully about Christmas, and we don't always do that, but when we think carefully about Christmas, it's not so surprising to us that we would think about our sin, because that is the reason, a primary reason that Jesus came into the world. He entered our world and came understanding our true need, and that our true need was to have a redeemer, to have a shepherd, someone who would save us from our sins. And so this morning, as we look at Galatians 6, 1 through 5, we're going to think about the important work of restoring one another when we find ourselves in sin. So before we dig in, I want to ask you a question to think about. Has there been a time in your life when you found yourself overtaken by sin? You found yourself caught in what the Bible calls a trespass or, or some other transgression, some sin habit that you just couldn't get out of. And to be quite honest, in that moment, you didn't want to get out of. It may be the kind of thing that led you to move away from other Christians or even to leave our church or or another church entirely for a time or you felt that tension. Well, this morning, it's those moments that we're thinking about because the principles that we find in these few verses can help us as a church and help us as individual Christians to think carefully about how we restore one another and what the gospel has to do with that restoration And in turn, 
as we put that together with the songs that we're singing at this time of year, what that has to do with Christmas. I want to remind you that we just sang some words in a Christmas carol that went like this. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. Do you know what that means? Sin and error pining, it means to long and long and long in sadness and grief. Right there in the middle of one of our most famous, most popular Christmas carol songs, we have this theme, this important question. What do we do with our sin? And our sin is surprisingly worse than we knew it was. So let's look at this text this morning and consider how we can be the kinds of people that restore one another in joy by focusing on the gospel and by caring for one another even when we are caught in sin. I want to read the text, all five verses, just so that we have kind of the landscape of them, and then we'll, we'll sort of pick out these three key truths as we work through them over the next few moments. This is what Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Brothers and sisters... If someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a spirit of gentleness, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. Carry one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone considers himself to be something when he's nothing, He deceives himself. Let each person examine his own work and then he can take pride in himself alone and not compare himself with someone else for each person will have to carry his own load. Let's pray once again and ask God to bless our our focus on his word this morning and that it would bear fruit in our hearts. Our Father, we do come to you this morning at this time of year with enormous gratitude and a lot of excitement as the anticipation builds over our celebration in our church and in our families of Christmas, of the incredible rescue plan that you put into place and fulfilled through the person and work of your Son. We pray that at this time of year, we would have our eyes on Christ and that we would have our ears and hearts hearing the gospel, the good news of what he's done for us. And we pray that our hearts would be lifted up in important ways, not only to be happy or encouraged or positive about this time of year, but also to be incredibly grateful because it is Christmas that reminds us that we are sinners and that we are such sinners that we needed a Savior who was the Son of God and is the Son of God. We pray that you would bring those truths home to us this morning and that they would bear fruit in our daily lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's the first truth that we're going to see this morning from this text, and it is simply this, that Christians can be enslaved by sin. Now, we begin here with what I think is probably a surprising reality for some or many of us, that idea that Christians can be enslaved by sin, can be, as, as Paul says here, overtaken by wrongdoing might be a surprising reality. You know, I think one of the reasons that is is because as Christians, and I think well-intentioned Christians, many of us and, and others, have wanted to put Jesus on such display, and we've wanted to represent him to the world as being powerful, which he is, sovereign, wise, good, happy, uh, glorious, 
worthy of our worship, the kind of God who is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. But in doing that, we may have, we may have pitched some ideas that are not true. And some of those ideas go a bit like this. If you become a Christian, Jesus will change you in such a way you won't wrestle with sin anymore. It might be a habit that you have. It might be um, some addiction that you struggle with. It could be some relationship problem. Or if you would just become a Christian, then, then your, whole, your whole marriage would be changed and everything would be fine. And that's not true. That's just not true. And so what we need here is what Paul gives us, this reminder, and it's sobering and it's humbling and it's important. And, and honestly, it does sting. It stings a little. Because for those of us that have kind of grown up in a Christianity that, that, that talked about the Christian life in such kind of rosy, unrealistic terms, unreal terms, when we hear this or when we face it, it really stings. For many of us, this has been kind of a rude awakening when it's happened. Either you have been caught in some sin. It could be that you were, you were caught and overtaken by, by some some sinful desire of your heart that led you to view certain things on the internet and you were caught in it. It could be that, that we have other desires at work in our hearts that have led us to be in conflict or to be you know, incredibly self-centered and, and, and ruling over other people in ways that, that Jesus just doesn't do. To wield, if you have authority as a husband or a boss or a dad or, or, or a mom, that you wield that authority like a hammer instead of, which was so helpful to me recently, instead of like an umbrella rather than covering those that you love, then this can be a, a surprising reality when this happens to us. But it does. It does. And Paul makes the point clear. Hear these words again, brothers and sisters. If someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, or, or you might have, uh, is overtaken by a transgression or a trespass. He's pointing out the reality of the situation, and we do well to think about it for a moment. Let's just key in on, it's important when you read the Bible to look at the verbs. If someone is, is overtaken by sin, there's an overtaking of sin. The word that he actually uses here is a Greek word, lambano. And the word lambano means to, to take something early. Or to take something, has a prefix on the front of it, to get ahead of something. So you see, it's kind of like the idea that you find yourself in life, a season perhaps, when sin has gotten in front of you. It's overtaken you. Or, or think about it like um, two people on a road, and they're walking down this long path, and there's an assailant behind them. The assailant is running. And no matter how fast they move, the assailant eventually catches up and overtakes them. He passes them by and gets in front of them and cuts them off. That's the picture that Paul's talking about. He's talking to ordinary Christians in churches like ours and telling them, brothers and sisters, don't be deceived. It is possible, it is likely it might even be frequent that someone among you will be overtaken by sin. Sin will get in front of them or sin will get in front of you. It will cut you off. You see, this is an important picture because it helps to frame out how we should think about sin. Sin is not, it's not a pet. That's what sin and the devil want us to think. 
That's what sometimes we, we fall into thinking, that my little sin habit is, it's, it's not that bad. It's going to be okay as long as I can keep it under control. It's a little bit like a pet sin. As long as you, you pet it and you keep it calm, you can go on with your life and you, know, it, you can coexist with it. But rather, this picture here is of someone chasing you. Sin, always chasing you, always crouching at the door, waiting to pounce on you. And that's like kind of scary language, but it's real. Paul wants us to think about it in these terms. So sin is not simply a physical thing, a physical person, though it can be. It could be embodied by that. It could be something physical that is attached to the the desires of our heart that are enslaving us. But what Paul is talking about here is something far more sinister, far more slippery, far more deceitful, is the way that sin can grow and sin can overtake us. Let's think about three reasons. There are more than three. But three big reasons, if you're taking notes, this might help us. Three reasons or ways that that sin overtakes us, like an assailant passing you on a road and cutting you off. One, sin grows when we fail to mortify it. Back to the pet picture. When we fail to put that pet to death, it grows. It's waiting. It's hiding. It's planning. It's, it's, it's planning its conquest. It's a sinister problem that we all have living inside of us. And so that sin grows when we fail to mortify it. You might remember the famous words from a Puritan named John Owen. And he said this, He said, be killing sin. You could probably even finish it. Or sin will be killing you. That's really striking, isn't it? Uh, That's probably striking every time that I hear it because I I don't keep that in the forefront of my mind all the time. In daily life, I get caught up in lots of other things. And again, because sin is deceitful, sin slips into the background for a moment, hides along the, the side of the road, and kind of moves up from cover to cover, making ground. And when I look back, I don't always see it there until finally it overtakes. So we must be killing sin because if we are not mortifying it, killing it, then it will grow. Number two, sin grows when we turn back to actually nourish it. We might think of this most in maybe the picture of addiction, Addiction is not simply something that happens to us, whatever it may be. Some of those addictions are the really big, like big ticket addictions we think about. It could be like drug addiction, alcohol, things like that. Sometimes there are, you know, low ticket addictions too. I feel like we're always like harping on it. Um, it's a part of life, but like social media, that, that very much can become an addiction. It's something we rely on. We escape through. We're not facing life. That can happen, right? in a low-grade kind of, kind of way. But it doesn't just happen to me. Social media scrolling doesn't just happen. It doesn't just take over. It takes over in part because I'm feeding it. I'm scrolling. I'm keeping it going. It could be that way with any kind of addiction, any kind of ruling desire in our hearts. Sin grows when we turn back and actually nourish it or start walking backward in its direction. Sometimes in in Christianity, we talk about this under the term backsliding. 
That's what it is, right? It's moving backward in our Christian faith. It's moving backward into the embrace of our sin rather than turning back to kill it. We're sort of feeding this pet, domesticating our sin. And then a third reason is that sin grows when we, it's the opposite of feeding it. We fail to feed or maintain something we considered recently through our our sermon series in Philippians. We fail to maintain or feed the happy endurance that Christ is ever working in us by his Holy Spirit. We are not feeding our sin. We might be working at killing our sin, but we're not feeding our souls. Sometimes, and this is important to the book of Galatians because we've been thinking about the difference between the law and the gospel. Sometimes, I think in our lives, this is the way that the law replaces the gospel and we feel really Christian about it. I see some sin issue in my life, and so my approach to kill it or to avoid feeding it is just to put up some guardrails on the path. I need to narrow the path down and kind of lock myself into some rules. And as long as I just keep inside these boundaries, maybe everything will be okay. But remember, sin doesn't work that way. Sin hops the guardrails. Sin doesn't obey the rules. Sin looks for the loopholes. So that's another reason why sin can grow in our hearts. This is another reason that we can be overtaken is when we're not actively feeding ourselves on the happiness of what it means to be a Christian. To feed ourselves on the good news, not simply hearing law, but also hearing gospel, lots and lots and lots of gospel. So this can happen in our Christian lives. This is something that's throughout Scripture. This is the central problem of the Bible. What are we going to do? What's going to happen with our sin? And it's, it's really surprising how we can do all the things sort of right and end up somewhere in sin. It's just hard. It's very hard. We should not underestimate the power, remaining kind of power of our sin to continue to chase us down. Listen to Isaiah 5, 1 through 4. It's another helpful picture right from the Bible. Listen to what it says. It talks about a vineyard. It talks about the vineyard being all set up just right. But then notice what the vineyard produces. It says, let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Wild grapes are sour. They're not useful. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? It's another one of those pictures of just how important it is to be careful and recognize with humility how we can be overtaken in our wrongdoing. So the first life application of this text, of this truth, is to accept this reality and to accept it head on without any kind of, um, uh, kind of polishing it up, 
any kind of, of returning to those, those well-intentioned but just untrue ideas that when you become a Christian, everything is better. Uh, it, it just, you get all green lights and you don't worry about sin anymore and you stop being a, a worrier and uh, you stop being a fighter and that's not entirely true. Not until the end, not until the end. So for now, we need to accept the reality of sin's troublemaking power, yes, in the lives of Christians. But next, I want you to see this that there is something for us in this experience in daily life to do about this problem. That God is working through us as a church, as, through, uh, as a family of believers, or wherever you go to church. I hope that you're in a church that's caring about these things and you have relationships to help strengthen you and you to strengthen others. Is to see that there is something to be done, and Paul says this next. Brothers and sisters, here's the first part. If someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, overtaken, sin gets in front of them, cuts them off, has captivated them, seems to be pulling them away, this is what he says next. You who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. So the second truth might be put this way. Free Christians, okay, Sometimes you're an enslaved Christian. You're still a Christian, but sin has overtaken you on the road. And you're in this season, you need help being restored, being given freedom. Other times you are free on the road. You're not being overtaken. You're actually making a lot of progress in your Christian life. You are feeding the happy endurance of knowing Christ. You are turning back only to fight and kill and mortify your sin. You're not feeding your sin. You're really thriving in the Christian life. These free Christians are instrumental. You can be instrumental in the life of someone else by restoring them in gentleness. And here's what's so great. Paul tells us exactly how to do this. He's really clear. Let's take a look and see what he says first. I want you to notice this. It doesn't always come through in our English, but if we were to go look at the, uh, the number of the nouns, whether it's plural or singular, this is the way it reads. Brothers and sisters, obviously that's plural. If someone, that's singular, one. If someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you, back to plural. You follow that? Plural. There's one person caught in a trespass or overtaken by sin, you plural, who are spiritual. Restore such a person. And he goes on with a, with a gentle spirit watching out for yourself so that you too will not be tempted. You see what the picture is? It's the picture of if there's one, even just one person who is overtaken by sin, that it's not one person who is free coming and helping and restoring them. It's a group of people. It's a team effort. It's a family affair to rally around this person. That's an important truth. That's something that doesn't just kind of jump out of our English. But that is important because you're getting a sense, we're getting a sense of how Paul sees this. He doesn't see it as one-on-one. It's a group on one or, or more. So he says, you who are spiritual Restore, cartizo, 
Another fancy word, the Greek word that he used for restore. It's a word that means to repair. That's a lot like restore. Or to mend. We might think as we look at the Gospels, the disciples of Jesus being fishermen, that comes up sometimes in their daily work, and that certainly would have been something that would resonate with readers at this time, and it resonates with us, that as they did their fishing uh, careers, that their nets would become tattered and weak, and there would become holes in their nets, and the fish that they were trying to catch would swim through the holes and disappear. They had to spend time restoring, that's the word, repairing or mending their nets, sewing up the holes. Man, the Bible is full of pictures. If we'll just take time to think about them, and they're so helpful to us. This is a picture of what Paul is envisioning we should do for each other when one of us is caught in sin. We should come around one another and aim to restore them. You see, it's a restorative process. It's not simply a discipline process. It's not a finger-pointing process. It's not a shouting process. It's not just a commanding process to do different. It's actually a gospel process. It's a restorative process. So in Matthew 18 is one of those places where we read about something that in our church sometimes we call church discipline. And it's the same kind of thing that's going on here in Galatians 6 that there could be a time when someone in our church is overtaken by sin and needs to be restored, and we make every effort to restore them, and that's the process of church discipline. The church takes on a, a disciplined approach to caring for this person. Now, again, in the history of Christianity, there have been thousands, probably, I don't know, I hate to say millions, that sounds like a lot, but maybe millions of examples of that kind of care being done really poorly. Where church discipline is wielded like the hammer of the law or like a sword to impale someone who didn't do what they were supposed to do. But in reality, what the Bible envisions in the gospel and what Paul is thinking about here and what we want to practice in our church is not just church discipline, but restorative church discipline, a disciplined approach to mending this person. It's a totally different demeanor. It's a totally different attitude. Parents, you and I know the difference when it comes time to discipline our children when we do it with law and when we do it with gospel. We know the difference. When we do it with law, we are angry. When we do it with law, we are rough. When we do it with law, we are exacting. But when we do it with gospel, we're restorative. We're embracing. Yes, it still stings, doesn't it? It still stings. But it's for restoration. It's in love. It's with grace and mercy and promise and hope. It's in the ultimate picture of Jesus' love for us in the gospel. And that's what he's telling us we should do for each other. That's how you restore someone. And restore them to what? Restore them back to their usefulness to God in our church. To restore them back to the, to the joy of their faith, to the happiness of Christ, to faithfulness, yes, but to the comfort of the gospel. That does not always turn out the way we would like it to. 
but it is what we're tasked to do. It's what we have the privilege to do. And so notice what he says about the people who are, who are restorers. You want to be a restorer, right? I want to be a restorer. What are they like? Notice first, he says, this is still at the end of verse one. Wow, <laughs> move along. You who are spiritual. He's just drawing a distinction between the two experiences of the Christian life in that scenario. One person is living more, one Christian is living more like a natural person, not like a spiritual person, not spiritually minded, natural minded, doing those things we said earlier, not, not feeding spiritually, but rather feeding sin naturally, not mortifying the flesh, not killing sin back on the road, but running back into sin, embracing it, moving forward. But the people that do the restoring, they are people who, again, they're making progress in their faith. It's a team of believers who are spiritually minded. They are gospel minded. They are hopeful. They are, as we see next, gentle. That's what he says, restore such a person with a spirit of gentleness. They're gentle in their hearts. Their spirits are gentle. When they approach this person in sin, again, they, they don't come wielding the hammer. They come opening the umbrella. They come getting out their needle and thread. They come with, they come with, with a bag of overnight clothes because they know it's going to take a while. They're here to be patient and take their time. These are the kinds of people who do restorative work. And then finally, notice this as well, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. So there's a real um, wisdom, but also humility in these people because the restorers in the picture know that they are sinners too. They know that they need the gospel too. And that actually is the reason why they can be gentle, because they're humble, because they know that they need to watch themselves. They know that it's not, it's not them over the sinner. It's not them pointing down, condescending on this person to t tell them how they should be living. Look at me. Why don't you be more like me? But rather, they're coming down to their level with humility. They have humble hearts. They have an incredible self-awareness that they know that they're prone to the very same thing. And in fact, that's what motivates them to do restoration. Okay. Do you know who cannot do restoration? Keep it in the context of Galatians. Legalists. The legalistic Christian cannot restore someone in sin because all they can think about are the rules that have been broken. All they can think about is how they keep the rules. All they can think about is how they are better than the sinner. But we know from Jesus that that's not what Jesus likes. That's not what he loves. That's not what he teaches us to do, right? He doesn't teach us to pray on the street corner and say, oh, God, thank you. I'm so glad that I'm not like this addict. Oh God, I'm so thankful that I'm, I'm not like this spouse in conflict, but rather beats his breast and says, oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I need you. That's the, that's the, the picture of humility. And so he says to us, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with the spirit of gentleness, watching out for yourselves so that you also won't be tempted. Re restore them. He's painting such a privileged picture of what we get to do 
And it's all the more reason for us to be really serious about the gospel, because we want to do this. We want to be the kind of people who are prepared. We want to be the kind of people who are gospel-minded. And we want to be the kind of people who are humble and gentle so that we can rally around each other when this happens. Does it always happen like that? It does not. Do we fail? Absolutely. We are all sinners. We are all in need of, of grace and help. But this is what we're, this is what we're after. Listen to this other passage. It's in James 5, 19 through 20. It's another one of those places that talks about this restoration, and it talks about it in such bright terms that I hope would, for you and me, would motivate us, that it would give us kind of a vision of what this is about. You know, because to be honest, when it comes to this restorative kind of discipline in each other's lives, probably many of us like kind of shrink back from that. We're afraid of that. I don't know if I want to get into all that mess. That's going to be really difficult. Uh, I didn't sign up for that. But instead, if we get this vision that we're actually doing the work that Christ came to do and does in us, it changes things. Listen to what it says, uh, what he says in James 5, 19 to 20. My brothers, if anyone among you, it sounds just like this, wanders from the truth, but he's going to talk about what it's like when the person comes back, because that's the hope, restoration. And someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. You cannot think of anything better than that. That should be the motivator. Why would I do that? Why would I fight to overcome my fear and my aversion to getting into the messiness of someone else's life? Because this is what I want to see happen. This is what I want to be useful to do. There's nothing more important that you could do than to see someone's soul, as he says here, saved, bring them back to, to Christ, assure them of their faith, and cover a multitude of sins. You know who loves to cover a multitude of sins? People who hate sin, people who hate their assailant, people who turn back and they do get out the sword then, those are the people that can be used to restore others. So what we should, what we should do, we got to pray for this. We do need to do some self-talk, some self-counsel and coaching. We need other people to be encouraging us, encouraging one another in this way, is to welcome, 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 welcome the privilege of humbly restoring someone else, right? You might think when you hear about this, well, I don't think I'm very fit to do that because doesn't it mean I'm like saying I'm better than you and like, oh, I'm gonna come restore you? Well, that's what the humble part is about. No, it doesn't mean that. It means I'm coming to give you exactly what I need and I hope you do the same for me when, when my day, if my day comes. I hope it doesn't, but it may if I read my Bible carefully. So finally, let's consider this in the last moment that we have. What's the grand reason? There's a big reason that we should do this. We read about it in that little cross-reference passage in James. But what's the grand reason that we should undertake the good work of restoration? What's the grand Christmas season reason that we should try to restore those who are caught in a trespass and you know, welcome vice versa? It's at the work of restoration fulfills something very important. It's what Paul refers to as the law of Christ. The law of Christ. 
Listen to what he says after that. He says in verse two, carry one another's burdens in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Having done this, this humble work of evaluating ourselves, which actually we see in those last couple verses this morning, notice those really quick. He says, if anyone considers himself to be something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. Here's that humility coming right on the tail end of this mention of Christ's law. It's a way of bookending together the gentleness and humility on the front and the gentleness and humility on the back, and we see who's in the middle, Christ. Christ is in the middle, holding both ends together. That's why we can do this, to consider ourselves and to examine our own lives, as he says here in verse 4. But notice, the work of restoration fulfills the law of Christ. Notice the way Paul describes this work of carrying a burden. Carry one another's burdens. It's more helpful, illustrative kind of language. Again, He doesn't say, correct one another's failures. He doesn't say, spank one another when you find them in sin. He says instead, carry their burdens, pick up the heavy weight. There are millions of like examples we could think of in our daily lives for the way that we do this for each other just naturally in the normal course of of church life. You, You help somebody move when they need to move, and you carry their burdens, you carry what is heavy for them, and you bear the load, or you see somebody on the side of the road, and their car is broken down, and you get out, and you carry the burden, you push the car, you give yourself, or, or you help them repair a broken drain line in their front yard, which is messy, difficult, burdensome work. You're carrying this burden so they don't have to do it alone. That's sort of the picture that he's painting. But Paul is, is not just talking about physical things. He's talking about the spiritual things, the spiritual burdens of those who are caught in sin and in trouble. And that's why he says, when you do this, you fulfill the law of Christ. Now, I think what he's saying here is there's another, he's using another way of defining the word law. We've been thinking about law and gospel as law being the, the, the righteous expectations that God has for his people, for all people. And because of that, it drives us into despair because we haven't done what he's commanded us to do. And the gospel is that good news that reminds us that, that salvation is not about what we can do. It's not about our rule keeping. That's not how you get in. You get in by, by belonging to Jesus because of what he's done for you. But here he uses the word law in a little bit different way. He uses it as a guiding principle of life. He's saying carrying burdens is the guiding principle of Jesus' life. That's what Jesus came to do. He came to carry our burdens. He came to to care for us. This is what he's done for us. You cannot get any more Christmas than that, okay? You've You've gotta make this connection in your heart and mind take this into Christmas Eve, take this into Christmas morning, because this is what Jesus came to do. He came to bear your burden, and he did not come to help you move or fix your drain. He came to carry all of the weight of your sin, all of it. He's carrying the burden. Listen, this is why he says in Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30, maybe on the screen there, if I put it there, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. How does he give you rest? By carrying the burden. He's the one who picks it up. 
take my yoke upon you. He exchanges, he exchanges yokes in a way. And learn from me, for I am gentle. Oh, there it is again. And I am lowly. That's just a synonym for humble. I'm gentle and I'm humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This means that we should above all else engage in this work of restoration with hope and with joy and with gladness because that's what Jesus does. You follow Jesus, right? I follow Jesus, right? We do, we do. That's what he does. You wanna be like Jesus? You do, I do. This is what he does. This is what he came to do. He doesn't just do it on Mondays. He does this every single day, carrying these burdens. And he does it with joy. The last little text that we'll just look at for a moment before we pray and then sing again and and expect this week that God will take these truths as we meditate on them and, and bear fruit in our hearts is Hebrews 12. It's such a great passage for us to to close with because it reminds us yet again of the person at the center of the two bookends, Christ himself, gentle and humble in heart, the burden carrier of burden carriers who has not only set the example but has called us to the work of restoration in our church with each other when it gets messy, when it is sinful, when sin overtakes. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let's also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Hear this. Do you hear this? Do you hear the way it comes right out of even this text again? This is the way that God and his people see their lives and the world. Sin which, which clings so closely And let us run with endurance on the road the race that is set before us. And how do we do that? We do that through the gospel. And what that means is, verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him got really messy and went through what was infinitely hard, enduring the cross. He despised the shame, and he is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God, the place of power, empowering us by his Holy Spirit to be like him in this and many other important ways, even at this season. So the last application this morning is simply this. Get comfortable we got to get comfortable talking about sin. We have to get comfortable talking about where we fail and what our struggles are. We have to get comfortable talking to other people in their sin, to go to them and overcome the nerves and the fear and and, and the, the pain because we have this joy set before us just as Christ did ultimately for us so that we can bring restoration through the hope of the gospel. That's what Christmas is, right? That's what Jesus came to do for us. And so this is a good reminder for us. It's, I hope, a striking reminder in the context of this time of year and then this part of the book and even in our own lives. You could probably think of people in your life 
that needs some encouragement and help from you because sin is catching up. It could be that you're one of these people. It could be that sin has overtaken you. It's cut you off on the road, and you need help. Look to those who can help you. Look to those who are spiritual in this moment because they will need you. They will need you when this happens again. Let's stand together and pray and ask God to take these truths into our hearts and to bear fruit with them and that this would come out even in the way that we sing now and uh, as God looks at our thoughts and he looks at our hearts as we sing, that he would be pleased. If you're not a Christian this morning, we encourage you to uh, talk to a pastor or someone else in our church. We want to share the gospel with you more and more. Let's pray. Our Father, we, we thank you for your infinite mercy and grace that you've shown us in Christ. It is an understatement of understatements to say that we are undeserving of what you do for us. We have not earned it. We have not come close to earning it. There's nothing that we could do to impress you or, or to, uh, to, to make up for, for our own sin, the mountain that's there. But, but we give you thanks this morning because Jesus has carried the mountain for us. And he has... Uh, come to us and changed us. And so we pray, God, that you would help us to be this kind of Christian. Help us to be people who restore with joy and people who have wisdom and are winsome and are humble and gentle. We need your help, and this season, we pray, would be a unique opportunity for us to reflect in this way on what Jesus has done for us. It's something we don't, uh, we don't always capture. We want to capture it this year, so we pray for your help, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.